And I invite you to take your Bibles with me this evening for our message and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5. The title of the message, Walking as Children of Light. Last time we were together, we spoke about Paul's teaching regarding the rapture of the church as it was taught in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18. And Paul's explicit reason, the reason that he specifically stated for teaching those truths was that the people in the church would not be ignorant and sorrow as those that have no hope. The idea is that you and I, as we approach the concept of, well, death as one of many concepts, uh, you and I, as we approach the world around us, um, are different from unbelievers. We have a different perspective. We have a different understanding, not only regarding how the world works, but also how the world ends. It's not that we have secret knowledge like the Gnostics would try to say, something that we have that others can't have. Much rather, everything that we understand about the world and about things to come is written in the Bible and fully accessible to a large portion of the world. But what we do have that the world around us does not have is the Holy Spirit indwelling us. The Bible teaches that at the moment of salvation, the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells inside of us so that we can rightly say that our bodies are the dwelling place, the tabernacle of God Himself. And it is that Holy Spirit that then illumines us, gives us the ability to understand spiritual things that the world around us simply cannot understand without the Holy Spirit's illumination. This power is available to any man who will accept it, but the Scriptures itself reminds us that very few proportionally in the world will ever accept Jesus Christ is their Savior and thus receive the indwelling Holy Spirit of God into their hearts. And because we have accepted the Scriptures as true, and because we have the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts as to the truths of the Spirit or spiritual truths, we see things in a way that the rest of the world simply does not. We understand things in a way that the rest of the world cannot And we know things that the rest of the world does not. Perhaps you've been listening on the radio or watching television or or listening on the internet to a politician or to people speaking about a politician and you said, how can they possibly think this way? Knowing what you know, understanding things the way you understand, how can they possibly think so incorrectly. And uh, as a believer, sometimes, uh, you know, it might be human arrogance, but other times it's simply because we see the world as God intends it to be seen through the eyes of the Word of God. And this understanding of the world around us should inform every aspect of how we live our lives. We can't just put our understanding of God and of His Word into a box and say, we're Christians in this area, but not Christians in other areas. That we, we regard God's Word in, in this area, but not in this area. 
We talked about it a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Biblical authority. The reality that if we don't believe the Bible in all areas of faith and practice and life, then we, how can we believe the Bible in any area of faith and of practice and of life? If, if certain parts of the Bible are wrong, then how do we know that the other parts are right? Who's to say if the other parts are right, if, if we're sure certain parts are wrong? But biblical authority and the Word of God teaches itself that the Word of God is accurate, is inerrant. That means without error, is preserved for us, for uh, us to be able to know today what God would have us to know. And so every aspect of our lives ought to be informed by the Word of God, and indeed can be. So let me ask you a, a rhetorical question as we get started. If you knew, if you knew absolutely that you were going to die tomorrow, what would that change about today? If you knew without a doubt that you were going to die tomorrow, what would that change about today? How would you spend your time? What would you consume or how would you consume the time that you have left? Well, you certainly wouldn't go home and just sit down and watch a movie, right? You might not even go home and go to bed tonight. You might say, okay, well, I'm dying tomorrow. I've got some things that can get done. Sleep can wait. I'll, I'll, I'll do something else. I'll, 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 there'll be a little extra urgency tonight maybe to contact a few people, maybe to set a few affairs in order. Uh, may, I don't know. What would you do if you knew you were going to die tomorrow? You'd be doing things, busy doing things that were worthy of the time that was left, correct? You would, you would rank everything and say, sleep's probably not on the list. You would rank everything and say, you know, I'm probably not just going to bum around for the next couple hours and then get to work. You'd be busy. Well, let me ask you this as we think about that scenario. If you knew that Christ was coming soon, what would that change about today? How would you spend your time? If you knew that when Jesus came, as the Word of God says, judgment begins at the house of God, and all those in unbelief are confirmed in their choice and are destined to a sinner's hell, what would you do? Throughout history specifically the history of the church, we might say that the greatest, most impacting servants of God have been those with the greatest urgency, compelled by two overriding realities. The first reality being this, that Jesus could indeed return at any moment to catch His church away. And second, the only thing that really matters in this life are things that are done for the next life. So let's talk together this evening as we consider Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, about urgency, priorities, about what it means to walk as children of light. Let's read the first 11 verses of 1 Thessalonians 5 together. Paul says, But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them, as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. 
For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us unto wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together, and edify one another, even as also ye do." In verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul begins by saying that he had no need to write unto them concerning what he calls the times and the seasons. Now this phrase, the times and the seasons, is one that's used several times in the Bible and always carries with it the idea of discerning the significance of the events that are surrounding you at any given time in history. Within the context of God's overarching plan for all mankind, discerning the events that surround you leading up to the consummation of all things. We see this idea of times and seasons mentioned in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Daniel is praising God and he says this, And he, that's God, changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom to the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. So Daniel uses this phrase, the times and the seasons, to describe God's purposes as they relate to his capacity to move from one age to the next age, from one purpose to the next purpose. That as God sets kings up, as he tears kings down, as he removes kings from rule, as he gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those with understanding, in the same way God determines the time that each age of the earth will operate and at what seasons these times change. We all recognize seasons and times in history, right? We can take history and we can divide it into generalized time periods. We give general dates to the rise and the fall of empires, and we see those rising and falling of empires as major events in history. We, in fact, oftentimes will revolve our understanding of history around how many of these events take place. We can break history into generalized time frames around significant events. There was an Iron Age, right? There was a Bronze Age. There was uh, the, the, Roman, the time of the Roman Empire. There was the time of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, there was the Industrial Age or the Industrial Revolution. Nowadays, we talk about the, the time of modernism and postmodernism. And we give each of these ages a label because we can recognize a shift in culture, in idea, in sentiment, in direction that the world is going, or a great leap in technology, the digital age, the internet age. Well, the Bible calls these ages times and seasons. That it is God who decides when any of these ages begin and end. It's God who said, I'm going to give enough revelation and wisdom to smart men to begin uh, the printing press or the uh, internal combustion engine. That it is God who, who dictates when these things 
begin, when they end, when kings rise, when kings fall, when nations, when governments, when empires rise and fall. It is God who transitions cultures and thoughts from one milestone to the next. So Daniel says that God is the God that changes the times and the seasons, the epochs of history. We see it uh, mentioned by Jesus Christ as well in Acts chapter 1. When the resurrected Jesus Christ, after His resurrection, He walked upon the earth teaching His disciples. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, His disciples looked at, at Jesus and said, Lord, wilt Thou at this time restore Thy kingdom to Israel? Is it time now, Christ? Now, okay, we didn't understand the whole death thing. That really threw us. But you're alive again now and you've been teaching us for, for some number of days, 40 plus days now. We understand now. We, we, we've got a better grasp on this. Now is it time? Or is the kingdom coming now? We thought the kingdom was coming before and it really bummed us out when you died. Now you're alive again. Now it's time for the kingdom, right? And this is Jesus' response in verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in His own power. Jesus says that's not, not, none of your business to know when, when the kingdom's coming. It's not now. He knew, they, they, they pretty well knew that by His answer, right? But it's, it's not your business to know. It's not our business to know. We don't know when the kingdom will be restored. But it's coming. Jesus tells them that God knows when the rule of the kingdoms of this world will give way to the rule of the kingdom of God. And it was not for them to know that timing. They were simply to be busy obeying God's revealed will on that day with earnest expectation and eagerly awaiting the kingdom of God that was to come. And so there we see a few examples of how times and the seasons is used in the Bible. Here in verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians 5, the idea that Paul gives here, as he says this phrase, the times and the seasons, is the, the same concept, the epochs of history. Paul says of the times and the seasons, of the transitioning from thing to thing, from major event to a major event, brethren, he says, I have no need to write unto you. As far as we are concerned, as we understand the whole of the Scripture, the next big event on God's timetable is the tribulation period, which we believe at Legacy Baptist Church will be initiated with the rapture of the church out of this world. So just after the teaching on the rapture, which is what uh, Paul taught on in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, he says, I don't really need to spend time telling you about the times and the seasons. And then he goes on to summarize the most basic conditions of the world at the time of the end. In verse 2, he says this, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Paul says, the reason I don't need to dwell on this concept surrounding the times and the seasons is because you already know perfectly everything you need to know. And what you know, first of all, is that when the Lord comes, He's going to come as a thief in the night. What an interesting phrase. A thief in the night. A good thief comes when he knows everyone will be least expecting His coming so that He has the greatest expectation of success at His nefarious purpose of taking things that don't belong to Him. 
In the same manner, Paul says, the return of Jesus Christ will be at a time when it is not expected. And Paul was not the only one to teach this doctrine. Peter would say this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So the picture that Peter gives of the end of the world of this time that, that will come upon the world quite unexpectedly will be a time of cataclysmic destruction. Jesus himself taught about this time in Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44, and he said this. He gave the parable of the fig tree, if you recall. And after the parable of the fig tree, he says this, Watch therefore. So the parable of the fig tree was to say that you can see signs coming. That there are signs that will tell you, generally speaking, something is about to occur. But then he says, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour the Lord, your Lord, doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. If a man knows when a thief is coming, he's not going to sit around and just let the thief come without taking care of business. He's going he's to watch up, wait up, and make sure that that thief doesn't get away with his stuff. Therefore, be ye also ready, Jesus says, for in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. Jesus called upon the church of Revelation to be prepared. Uh, one of the seven churches, specifically, he says this in Revelation 3.3, 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, he says, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. He says if you're not watching, then you're not going to be prepared. If you are not doing right, if, you, if your garments aren't clean, then, then when Jesus Christ comes, you might have dirty garments on. And then he says this in Revelation 16, verse 15 as well. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, guards them, keeps them clean, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This verse is a fantastic verse to end on as we think of this concept of Jesus Christ returning as a thief in the night. Because it says very obviously what every one of these other passages at least implies. That the point of watching is not that we know when something is going to happen, but that we are prepared for what we expect to happen. It's not that we know exactly when it's going to happen, it's that we're prepared when it does happen. And there's a big difference, is there not, between knowing or excuse me, expecting something to happen and being prepared for it to happen, or knowing when it's going to happen and understanding that it's, it's coming. When a woman is nine months pregnant, the family is in a state of preparation. Not necessarily a place of expectation the whole time. Dad can't drop everything for a couple of weeks, just sit at home staring at mom, waiting for this baby to come. That's an expectation. The baby's coming. 
And for two weeks, he could be sitting there saying, the baby's coming, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. But, you know, he's not earning money and he's not feeding his other children. And, and that's not a very productive thing to do at nine months. Mom can just be sitting in her chair saying, the baby's coming, the baby's coming, the baby's coming. But that's not really going to be the most productive way to use her time when there's... I mean, just because she's nine months pregnant. The kids don't just sit around watching mom. The family is prepared. Maybe they're going to the hospital, so the bag is packed, and you make sure that the, there's fuel in the car, and, and you've got a babysitter lined up for whatever day and hour it might happen. So you're prepared. Everything is in place, but you're not just going to throw, you know, throw all of your other duties out the window and sit and watch and wait. You move on with your lives until the time comes. We are called to be in a similar state. We're not supposed to be expectant of Christ to the degree that we stop living our lives, sell everything that we have and go sit up on a hill, just stare at the sky until Christ returns. But by that same token, we must be in a place of constant readiness, preparation, knowing that Jesus Christ could return at any moment and ready for that time. Just like the pregnant woman, there are telltale signs and indications of the nearness of the event. And Paul even uses that analogy as we step into verse 3. See what he says. For when they shall say, Paul again, speaking of the end of the world, of this time uh, of the Lord's return, when they shall say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction, we saw that in Second Peter, cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. So Paul is saying at some point, we'll go from being nine months pregnant to, oh, the water broke. At some point, it's going to become obvious that things have now been set in motion. And that will be a transition. Sudden destruction will come upon them and they shall not escape. And Jesus describes the conditions of Christ's second coming as such. He would also describe the conditions of Christ's second coming as similar to the days of Noah. And this is another helpful analogy. Consider Jesus Christ's teaching in Luke 17, beginning in verse 26. He says, And as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also as it was in the days of Lot. They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be, he says, in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The world will be saying peace and safety. The world will be carrying on. They will have no concept. The, the unbelieving world will have no concept of what is about to befall them. The unbelieving world, they'll still be marrying and giving in marriage. They won't have the urgency that the world is about to end, that destruction is about to come. They will just keep on keeping on the way man has always kept on keeping on. And then he says, sudden destruction will come upon them and they will be caught completely unaware. And we must recognize that the warning about the suddenness of this moment has as much to do with ill preparation in the hearts of men 
for Jesus' return as it has to do with how quickly these events will transpire. In the days of Noah, it is not as if the men and the women didn't have warnings of judgment. In fact, Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And we know that there was 120 years between when God commissioned Noah to begin building the ark and when the the actual destruction took place. And so when we put those facts together, we recognize that Noah had probably spent at least a little time telling people this was about to happen. It's not that they didn't know, it's that they didn't care. It's not that they didn't know, it's that they didn't feel any urgency. I'll deal with God tomorrow. I'll take care of this stuff tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. But there's not, is there? At some point, there will be no more tomorrow. Now, for each of us as mortals, that could be today. I mean, we could die on the way home. We could get into a car accident. I could, I could just drop dead right here. It can happen. So we have no guarantee of tomorrow. But there's coming a day where the world has no guarantee of tomorrow. It's not that men in the city of Sodom didn't know that there was unrighteousness. In fact, Lot told them when the two angels came to the door, Lot said, don't do this sin. And they said, stop judging me. That's what they said. Don't judge me. What do you think? You're a stranger among us. Stop judging me. It's amazing. Even back then, they used that same excuse. Judge not, lest you be judged, right? Stop judging me. That's what the men in Sodom said to Lot. Incredible. So it's not that they didn't know. It's that they had rejected. I'll deal with God tomorrow, they said to Lot. The problem was that the people had no understanding of the urgency of the times, of the severity of the times, the surety of destruction. So when destruction came, they were unprepared. When the door closed to the ark, it was not opening again. And all of a sudden, the people saw the rain falling and they said, oh no, this is real, it's too late. In the days of Sodom, Lot and his family flee the city and then the people look up and they see hail and brimstone falling from heaven, fire and brimstone, and they say, oh no, but it's too late. By the time the unbelieving world realizes that Jesus Christ is indeed the King of Kings and that He is going to do what He promised He would do, it's going to be too late. So too will judgment be at the end. It will happen suddenly. The world will not be ready. And the world will not escape. Now time for the contrast. Look what Paul says in verses 4 and 5. He says, But ye, that's the believers that he's writing to in Thessalonica, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Today in Sunday school, we talked about John 3... 19, that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They love darkness. The unbelieving world wants their darkness. But Paul says, look, you are not in darkness. You are children of light. That word but is such a beautiful word in our Bibles. So often, particularly in the Pauline epistles, we'll be reading about doom and destruction and awfulness and then Paul will say, but God or but by grace. What a beautiful word. And Paul says it here, but 
But you, he says, you brethren, you believers, you children of God, you are not in darkness. You are not ignorant to what is coming. You are not blinded by the world around you. You are not blinded by your own sin. You are not so ignorant that the day of judgment will overtake you as a thief. You are a child of the light, not a child of the darkness. You walk in the day. You don't walk in the night like unbelievers in this world. You see things as they really are because you see through the glasses of the Word of God, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. You know what's really coming in the future. It's not just follow your dreams. There there are definitive things coming and we know them. And Paul's point here, like the point of every Scripture passage that describes the judgment of God at the end of the world is this. Because you know the surety of what is coming, you can be prepared for it in every way. And if you can be prepared, shouldn't you be prepared? If you do know that it's coming, if you do know that you're in the ninth month of the pregnancy, if you do know that at any moment Christ could return, Shouldn't we be living our lives in such a way that we are ready for that return? Shouldn't we be living our lives in such a way that when we see our Savior's face, we don't have to hide it in shame? We don't have to hide our face in shame saying, oh, all of those things that I said, I'll get that taken care of tomorrow. I'll I'll do that tomorrow. I'll serve the Lord in that way tomorrow. Uh, I'll I'll get around to it someday. (coughs) What's the urgency? Because he could come. So Paul says this in verse 6. Therefore, he says, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. See, you're a child of the light. Paul says, don't sleep in the daylight that you have. Now carry the analogy through. Paul is not saying that you're not allowed to get physical rest. Paul is not not saying that you're not allowed to sleep at two in the afternoon because it's light out. Paul is contrasting you as a child of the light with those in the world who are children of darkness. Because you are in the light, that being the light of understanding and obeying the Word of God, because you have accepted the light, Jesus Christ in John 14, 6 saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the light of the world. We have accepted Jesus Christ who is the light. We need to be awake. Be taking advantage of the light that we have. Be taking advantage of the time that we have as illuminated believers to be spreading that light. To be living in the light. To be walking in the light while you're here on this earth. While you're walking in the light of God's Word, there's things to be done. Don't allow yourself to sleep through your Christian life is what Paul is saying. And in order to do that work, we must be vigilant, alert, serious. He says, watch and be sober. That word sober literally meaning of a right mind, sensible. Have all of your faculties intact, on task, and ready to serve the Lord. And he says this in verse 7 as he extends this analogy. He says, For they that sleep, sleep in the night. And they that be drunken are drunken in the night. Sleep is meant to be done in a time of darkness. 
Drunkenness, which is contrasted with the word sober in verse 6, is most often seen in men. Men most often get drunk at the end of the day and into the night. And Paul says these things, sleeping, drunkenness, these things are for those who are in darkness. It's not, it's not appropriate. It's even less appropriate for the daytime. We are of the day. And to sleep away the daylight hours that we have or to drink away the day reflects a heightened degree of apathy and inappropriateness. Likewise, the things that we are doing ought to be day things as Christians. We ought to be living in light of the time that we have. We've all been in situations where we've slept a day away. For whatever reason, we've slept a day away or maybe we've just wasted an entire day. Get caught up in a movie or, or uh, get caught up with whatever it might be and you had a big to-do list and you get to the end of the day and you just say, wow, nothing got done today. At the end of the day, perhaps there's some regrets at the high degree of waste. Imagine what could have been done with that day if we'd have gotten on task, if we'd have gotten dressed and took a shower and moved on with our day. Imagine if we had woken up and if we had started our day properly. We waste time and at some point we realize that that time can't come back to us. That when it's gone, it's gone. It's truly been lost. And this is Paul's warning. He says, as Christians, you have been awakened spiritually. You are no longer walking in the darkness of the ignorance of this world. You're no longer walking not realizing that the day of the Lord is coming. Not realizing that judgment will begin at the house of God. Not realizing that there's a God in heaven who, who desires you to obey Him. Not realizing that there is a righteous judge that we are accountable to. And now that we are of the day, we've accepted Christ as our Savior, we realize that these things are, are, are occurring. We've been illuminated to the reality. We're walking in the day... We ought not just sleep through it. Don't just go back to sleep. Don't just ignore it. Don't just be apathetic to it. Live in the day. Don't just stumble through this life ensnared by your own priorities and your own lusts. We shouldn't do that. As children of light, we are bearers of better things. We are bearers of greater responsibilities. And this is what Paul says in verse 8. He says, but let us. Don't sleep. Don't get drunken. Don't, don't pretend like it's still night even though you're in the day. He says this, but let us who are of the day be sober, be serious, be, have our, our minds with us, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for an helmet the hope of salvation. Because we're of the day, let's grow up, let's get out of bed, let's put on our armor and let's get to work fighting these spiritual battles. Let's put on faith and love. He says, the breastplate of faith and love. Let's put on the helmet of the earnest expectation of the salvation that is to come. The analogy of the virtues of the Holy Spirit as pieces of armor does not usually bring our minds to this passage, does it? Here Paul uses it, and it's also said in Isaiah, but the main armor of God passage as we would call it, is found in Ephesians chapter 6. And there, Paul gives us the whole armor of God, he says. In Ephesians chapter 6, we see the breastplate not as faith and love, but in that passage, it's called the breastplate of righteousness. 
In both passages, the helmet is indicative of salvation. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says it is the helmet of salvation. In this passage, it's the helmet of the hope or the expectation of salvation. And this is what is intended. This is what God intends for your life to be defined by. A life taken seriously for the Lord, filled with definite purpose and directed towards fulfilling God's will for you. And he brings this whole lesson back around to the idea of the end of the world. Remember, that's where it started. Of the times and the seasons, you have no need that I write unto you, Paul said. He brings the whole concept back around to the end of the world in verse 9. He says this, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The word appointed here literally means to place or to put, to lay something down, to set something down. It's a good translation to use the word appointed. Everyone has, as it were, we could say a place in God's plan, a place in God's system. Whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, or regardless of our spiritual gifts, we have a place in God's plan. If we believe, we've got a a much more uh, exciting place in God's plan than if we don't believe. But God is God, we are men, we have a place in God's plan. And the contrast is that our purpose as as children of the light, as children that are walking, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God because we've accepted Christ as our Savior, our purpose is not to incur God's wrath. We have been saved from the wrath that is to come. We are not here to experience the twilight of earth's days when God's anger will be poured out on the unbelieving world. That's not for us. We've been saved from that. We don't need to be a part of that. We talked last week about the reasons why we recognize that the, that the tribulation period is not for us as a church. The first reason is because, uh, well, the two reasons for the tribulation is presented in Scripture is number one, to chasten the national Israel back to God, and number two, to judge the world for their sin. Well, we do not need to be chastened back to God because we stand before God holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. And we do not need to be judged for our sin because Jesus Christ was judged for our sin already and we have accepted that that payment when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior. So neither one of those apply to us. And here, Paul says specifically that we are saved. We're not appointed unto wrath. But much rather, here's that lovely word, but again, but instead, we are to obtain salvation. We're to walk in the day, minister in the day, operate in the day, live in light of what we know, call others unto the day, and then end our lives by obtaining salvation. Eternal salvation, the eternal salvation that we have long sought. Now, verse 10 is essential. Stick with me a few more minutes. He says in verse 10, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Now, throughout the past several verses, Paul has been metaphorically speaking of being awake or asleep as the condition upon which we live our lives. We're either sleeping through our light Hours. In other words, we're a Christian and we're either wasting our lives as a Christian, not doing what we ought to be doing for the Lord, or we're living. We're awake in those hours. We're busy doing the Lord's work. We're busy being prepared for His coming. 
Now in this verse, we see a, a transition, a clear, uh, clearly a different usage of the words waking and sleeping here. Likely, Paul is not speaking of how we live our lives in verse 10, but rather whether or not we are alive or dead. And as we carry over the understanding of verse 9, Jesus Christ redeemed us from wrath, from the wrath that this world is hurtling towards. Jesus Christ has pulled us out of the very darkest corners of our own hearts and not only redeemed us from the power of sin that ensnared us, but has given us an eternal home in heaven for eternity. So whether we're here in our mortal bodies, alive, or whether we are resting in our heavenly home, dead, make no mistake, as children of the light, we are intended to live with Christ, to live in fellowship with Christ, whether apart from Him in fellowship through communion with His Spirit or with Him either in spirit or in body. He is ours and we are His. And this is why He died. He died for us for the purpose that whether we are dead or alive, wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. We should be in communion with Him. The child of light that's sleeping through His light is not communing with His Lord. The child of light is expected to live in the light so that whether we're alive or whether we're dead, we live together with Him. Wherefore, Paul says in verse 11, comfort yourselves together and edify one another even as also you do. Now, just last week, just like last week, excuse me, verse 11 tells us that these words are intended as words of comfort. It should comfort us knowing that we have a home in heaven that no man can take away from us. It should comfort us knowing that we are saved from the wrath that is to come. It should also comfort us knowing that we have a purpose while we're upon this earth. We talked about it uh, this afternoon at the nursing home. That, that we have a, a motivation, we have a purpose for living, not to live unto ourselves, but unto Him who loved us and gave His life for us. But these truths should do more than just comfort us. As Paul spoke on the rapture, that was, that was comfort, about the Lord bringing the dead in Christ with Him when He comes, that was comfort. But this, he says, it should not just comfort us. They should build us up. They should edify us. These truths should inspire us to live a prepared life. To live the potential that Christ intends for us to have in this life. You are a child of light. Don't live like a child of darkness. You have been redeemed from sin. Don't go back to the trash heap that the world is asking you to live in. You are appointed unto the glory of being a child of the King, an heir to the kingdom of God. Don't just turn your alarm clock off and sleep through that. Wasting all of the opportunities to reflect Christ to a lost and dying world, to clothe yourself in obedience. Don't just skate through life 
living for yourself when you have all the tools at your disposal because you are a child of light to live as a glowing representative of the kingdom of God among your family and loved ones. If you are a born-again believer in this room this evening, your salvation is, and I can say this without reservation, your salvation is the best thing that ever happened to you. If you are a believer, your salvation is the best thing that ever happened to you. You became a child of the light on that day. You began seeing things as they really were on that day. The sin fell away. The blindness fell away. The ignorance fell away. You were illuminated by the Holy Spirit. But just like a child who was born to riches and so doesn't really understand the privileges that he has, we can lose sight of exactly how blessed our condition as believers really is. We can lose sight of what we have been saved from, how much God has done for us, and so we can begin to turn our thoughts inward instead of turning them upward. We can begin to get selfish. And like that child who has been born to riches, so he spends money indiscriminately because he doesn't even understand the value of money, we can start to forget the value of what it means to be a child of light. And we can actually even start to envy children of darkness. We can actually even start to envy a world that is lost in their sin. God forbid. This inward thinking can lead us to worry where we ought to be comforted. Inward thinking can lead us to apathy where there should be passion. Inward thinking can lead us to rebellion where there should be obedience. To confusion where there should be clarity. And so as a child of the day, it is our privilege to, as Paul says here, wake up, sober up, and live like a child of the day. To put on a tireless faith that will stand against the attacks of Satan and his demons. That's what the armor of God represents is our shield against Satan's temptations. To manifest a love for one another and a love for all men that reflects the very deepest essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And to hope, to expect our salvation, to hope in our salvation, not to fear, not to sorrow over death as Paul spoke on last week, not to live lives dwelling upon the temporal things of this life, but to keep our hope, to keep our expectation focused upon the salvation that is to come, to keep our garments pure, to make sure that they're on, to be living in such a way that if the Lord were to come right now, we could look at Him and not be ashamed. Not be ashamed at what was going through our minds. Not be ashamed at what we were planning to do when we got home. Not being ashamed at, at what we do or what we say or what we think, but we can live our lives unashamed because we know we've been living in His will as a child of the light. Now, I don't know how you're doing today, but perhaps you, as a child of light, have found yourself sleeping a little bit. You're, you are a child of light. You are walking with assurance of your salvation, but maybe you've not been living like a child of the light. You've been, you've been asleep. You've been skating through your Christian life. You've been saying, well, I'll take care of getting serious about God tomorrow. I'll worry about 
uh, really getting involved in the things that God is doing tomorrow. I'll talk to my friends and neighbors tomorrow. I'll be a good testimony tomorrow. I'll deal with it another day. Well, if there is another day, then perhaps that might work. But as Paul addresses the urgency of the times and the seasons, he says, because you're a child of light and you know what's coming, there ought to be an urgency in your heart to make sure that every moment of every day you are in a place of, of a right relationship with God, right fellowship with God, in order that when He does return, you are prepared. Let's pray together.